Hey, Tablet Show fans. Richard and I are going to be at the Dev Intersection Conference at the Marriott Grand Lakes in Orlando, Florida, April 13th through 16th. Come see your favorite speakers, Scott Guthrie, Scott Hanselman, John Papa, Billy Hollis, Brian Noyes, Dan Wallin, Todd Anglin, Tim Huckabee, Michelle Bustamante, Miguel Castro, Duval Lowy, Kathleen Dollard, and many more. Go to devintersection.com to register now. You'll save 200 bucks if you register on or before February 24th, $100 if you register between February 25th and March 31st, and you can save an additional 50 bucks by specifying .NET Rocks is how you heard about the conference. More details at devintersection.com. We'll see you in April. The Tablet Show, Episode 128, with guest Todd Morrison. Recorded live Tuesday, February 25th, 2014. From thetabletshow.com, it's The Tablet Show. Conversations about developing software for tablets and other mobile devices with your hosts, Carl Franklin and Richard Campbell. In this episode, Carl and Richard talk to Todd Morrison about his experiences building sophisticated media apps using HTML, CSS, and JavaScript. This episode of The Tablet Show is sponsored by Telerik, offering the best in developer tools and support. Online at T-E-L-E-R-I-K dot com. And now, here are Carl and Richard. Thank you very much. This is Carl Franklin and Richard Campbell, and we are at the Computer History Museum in Mountain View, California. Indeed we are, and sitting behind some pretty seriously old gear. This is Silicon Valley, which is maybe soon to be its own state. <laughs> yeah, the, the six Californias. Two of which don't have the name California in them. Right. Like Jefferson and Silicon Valley and the rest are all like West California and... I don't see this all that like Southern California. Clearly people with too much money. Yeah. That's where these things come from. But you know, the important part is this is the part of the world where pretty much the integrated circuit was and the computer was developed, yeah. right? Fairchild Semiconductor, which is sort of the beginning of that, taking those first transistors and starting to tie them into electronic components. And those guys who left Fairchild, Noise and, and uh, uh, Moore formed Intel. Right. And that all happened around here. Right. And not long ago, yeah. actually, in the great Everything we do, my friend, and a lot of other people do, mm. started from all of that. Came from right here. We saw a recreation of Charles, not a recreation, but the realization of Charles Babbage's mechanical computer. Yeah, the differential engine the version different. two, number two. Yeah. Only two have ever been built. One of them is here. And one was his son, right? Uh, the first one that was built was in the 1900s, you yeah. said? Yeah, 1910. Mm -hmm. His son actually built a piece of it as well. But yeah, it did polynomial calculations. It's absolutely and, magical. And Babbage never saw it Never created. saw it built. Yeah. Never actually saw it built. He built fragments of it. And he never built, and no one's ever built, an analytical engine, which mm. he completed the design on. Mm. To generate. So the differential engine only does polynomials. The analytical engines when he came up with the model to do programming. Right. So if he, and this is 1850. Yeah, yeah. If he had had the money and been able to pull it off, we yeah. could have had steam powered mechanical computers in the 1860s. I would encourage everybody to go back and listen to not the tablet show, but.NET Rocks early on when uh, Charles Petzold was a guest. And mm -hmm. I believe that might have been before you. Um, but he did a show, whole show on mechanical computers. Right. And because I believe he wrote a book. Uh, to that effect. And there's a bunch of them around here. It's part of the fun of this museum. All right. Well, anyway, let's uh, roll the music for Better Know Framework. Awesome. All right, buddy, what do you got? Well, this is uh, shot two weeks before it aired, but 
at the time of recording here, uh, we just found out that Microsoft is releasing uh, the second CTP of Visual Studio 2013. Right. And it includes full support for TypeScript. Nice. Tooling and uh, the language. So built right into Studio. Right. Built right into Studio. If you go to uh, tinyurl.com slash vs13ctp2. Nice. See how I remembered that? Yeah, oh, yeah that's it. all right. Uh, this brings you to uh, ZDNet, uh, Mary Jo Foley's article, Microsoft adds near final TypeScript to Visual Studio 2013 update 2. It's exciting. Uh, very exciting. Anders is quoted in here. And also, there's some new st uh, other new stuff. And uh, you'll see me going like this. I got a great story about that in a minute. <laughs> you know what I'm going to say. Uh, so what else is included in Update 2? Integration with the latest ASP.NET MVC, Web API, and Web Page releases. Entity Framework 6.1 Beta 1 is now included. Windows Azure notification hubs can send test notification messages to Windows Store, Windows Phone, iOS, and Android devices and check the outcome in real time. Nice. This is in a CTP. That is very cool. Oh, my gosh. Inclusion of Team Foundation Server 2013.2 release candidate with Go Live license for TFS components and Git improvements and support build of Java apps in hosted Git repositories with Visual Studio Online. So this nice. is good stuff. Yeah, no, you're no kidding. It's not yeah. a little CTP. No. It's a lot of stuff. Yeah, it's a lot of stuff. So there you go. Uh, and, and the reason I went like this is because earlier Richard and I were in the speaker's lounge here, and uh, and he's rebooting. What were you, rebooting your server? I was fixing server? my mail server from home. Remotely. And I see him, and he looks like this. He's squinting uh, at his Zelter book like this. And I said, I would just bust out laughing because I remember we were talking about this on the show. Yeah. How these, you know, he's all, you're all into 4K displays. Yeah, I love my 3200 by 1800 display. Yeah. But I hadn't zoomed RDP yet. <laughs> so the pixels were really small. <laughs> so I literally like had to take my he's glasses like, off and get right up to the screen to see. And he's like this. <laughs> and I said, it truly is the way that they're weeding out the old people. 3200 by 1800 on a 13 inch display is really small. It's really small. It's really small. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's too funny. Awesome. Well, right. I'm glad the CTP is great. Yeah. Know it, learn it, love it. Who's talking to us, my friend? I grabbed a comment off of show 118, and that's the one we did on the road trip with Chris Love back yeah. in Dallas. Right. And uh, that's what we were talking. We went over all kinds of subjects with Chris that Yeah, time. we did. It was, all, it was all over the map, really. But this comment here comes from Stephen Ball, who says, uh, Great show as always, guys. Chris's comment regarding touchable area in the UI really stuck with me. I use a first-generation iPod touch to play my music collection, as well as my podcast, including Donna Rocks the Tablet Show. When new episodes of Donna Rocks or ta Tablet Show come out, I turn on Wi-Fi and download the latest episodes straight to my iPod from the iTunes store. While I enjoy not having to sync the iPod to get new podcasts on my iPod, like not having to plug it into a PC, I hate how small the download button is on the iTunes store. This is not built for touchability. It's small like buttons. Yeah, it's all about small buttons. You <laughs> and you got to gotta squint. squint. <laughs> if you miss the mark, the podcast begins to preview rather than download. After a few attempts to download the podcast, I often get frustrated. I hope that Apple updates their UI into a newer version of iOS to improve the touchable space on their buttons. And then he followed up a few days later with, uh, I had not... Uh, been using the iOS app because my office building did not have wireless internet access. Now that I've posted my comment, we've moved to a new building and I have Wi-Fi, so I've unsubscribed to podcasts via iTunes entirely, mm -hmm. and I'm using your apps. Mm. So he gets .NET Rocks and Tablet Show through the apps. 
It's awesome. Which is good. That's a happy news. Steven, thanks so much for your great comment. A tablet show mug is on its way to you. And if you'd like a tablet show mug, just write a comment on the website at thetabletshow.com or on any of our mobile apps. We've got them for Windows Phone, Windows 8, iOS, and Android. And those apps are built by Diatom Enterprises. Who'd like to build you an app, just go to diatomenterprises.com. And that brings us to our guest today. Uh, Todd Morrison is a senior developer and program manager at Vertigo Software. Todd, welcome to the Tablet Show. Thanks for having me here. Yeah, well, thanks for being here. Uh, you are are quite the geek, and your boss, Scott Stanfield, uh, has told us stories about you. And you, you're not all intimidated by all this crazy technology either. You've been working on a, a lot of different systems. That's right. That's right. I mean, we 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 dropped into a world that's very diverse and beautiful, and I try mm-hmm. to take as much advantage of it as possible. Now, you, I know I want to talk about web development, but yeah. you, I mean, Vertico is well known as the guys who do a lot of kind of experimental stuff. They did the 2010 Olympics, mm-hmm. and what projects of Vertigo's would people know of that you were involved in? You know, one of the big ones that we uh, that was part of the Xbox 360 wave was the HBO Go application, and um, wow. there was a really cool wave of applications that came out there. It's a new space. Tell us before we gloss over that what that app is. Oh, great! So uh, HBO Go for Xbox 360 was uh, it was kind of kind of a revolutionary way to deliver TV and content to consumers. That's different than you would see on the web or on you know traditional tablets or phones. Mm-hmm. Um, basically, Microsoft decided to take the Xbox 360 and just turn it into this awesome TV anywhere connected device, and and from that introduce this giant wave of all these apps that you traditionally would consume using you know your phone or tablet or the web. Right. So a way to get it on the 10 foot experience, my my big 60 inch LCD screen with via my Xbox 360. What That's kinds right. of things could you do with with this app? You know, one really cool thing is it was integrated with the gaming experience. So, like, you can literally play games and get achievements, go into apps and get achievements, and actually start communicating in that ecosystem. Um, that was something I think was really unique and challenging about that project, and we had a lot of great feedback about that. But that's separate from the TV thing, though. So, what about with HBO? What's the? How does it differ from, say, a Netflix experience? Yeah, I would say that on HBO, like the really great thing about that company in particular is they're really, really powerful about content and brand. Um, mm-hmm. So in that environment, we found ways of driving experiences to not just basically that was the beginning of the second screen, you know, mm-hmm. kind of wave. And so we were we were tuning experiences to make it so that when you were playing in this Xbox ecosystem, you could watch an HBO like premiere of a show. You could pop up your Surface and actually start interacting with it and, and seeing details about the show as well. All right, so that so that is the typical second screen. You yep. know, you're watching a a series or something. You want to find out something more about what's going on right now. You know, maybe do some research. What was that actor in another? Didn't I know that guy from somewhere? Or that, yeah, do that kind of research. Is that the kind of thing that it did? Or so that that was kind of a part of their their overall grand vision that we got to work with them with. Yeah. Uh, and so the, I think that was definitely some of the very early people that tried to figure out how to integrate that type I of experience. See. And it really just adds a new dimension to television. And so there was a lot of uh, user experience patterns, a lot of yeah. technical patterns that were really new at that time. So what was your particular involvement in that project? So I was the technical lead of the entire you know application that Vertigo ran there. Um, oh wow! And you know so that it was just really exciting working with Microsoft to to do that. It was really fun. So were, were you assigned kind of the creative vision behind that thing uh, as well, or just how they came to you and said, this is the problem we have to solve, you figure out how to solve it? So so luckily I do work with a lot of talented people at Vertigo. Mm-hmm. Um, and and not, I'll, I'll repeat again, HBO is super awesome about their brand. Like they right. came in and they said, this is... We want to paint the world, you know, yeah. so they, and they had it all plotted out. Nice. So, 
Um, but yeah, I think I, th I was definitely involved with the technical enablement side got rather it. than the design. And we have talented designers that have stepped in got and helped with that. See, do you use that wow. term internally, that whole the 10-foot experience versus the 3-foot experience versus the handheld experience? Do you think that way? You know, I think that yes, yes, to answer your question. Um, you know, what we try to value and what I try to know as a software developer is I'm always trying to put on the product ad. Mm -hmm. And that means that what is the end goal here? We have to be pragmatic. Like, what's the user going to experience? And the fact is, is just like the web and any other environment, um, each one of those use cases, each one of those personas, they're actually completely different. Like people sure. have different needs and values, the interactivity is different. Mm. So yeah, you do have to kind of tune apps that either hit that median line of hitting them all, or you need to adaptively kind of shift things for those, those users. Mm. Yeah, and on the website, it's this whole idea of responsive web design. That's right. But uh, I see responsive web design mostly as being able to build a web page that looks decent on a PC, on a tablet, <laughs> and on a phone. I mean, am I wrong? Isn't that sort of the, the essence of it? So I think I think that that's how it began, right? Because mm -hmm. you couldn't get to all these platforms. But I think now it's really just evolved into something magical, really. Mm -hmm. I mean, like the the typical like the way you approach a, an, a responsive web design, you know, application is you actually build kind of an information architecture and you come up with what your product is or what you offer. But really what you're doing is you're kind of revealing things about your content for each individual environment. And mm. that, that goes again with that 10-foot experience. Mm. Like, you know what you have and you know what you have to offer. But really the user, they're, they're in completely different scenarios when they're on their phone and they're gesturing and swiping. Right. Or when they're on their tablet, there's completely different use cases. Or having Verita connect as well. You're just waving around. That's, <laughs> right. So that was one of the exciting challenges about Xbox is that there's things called, they call mod modalities. Mm -hmm. And so each individual interaction has to have all these pathways. And because some people, they just love in and using voice and people use gesture the whole time yeah. and some people are just the the gamepad controller or they have the remote because there was a remote or the the, 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 the media remote well. that's right. so it isn't just the the device that that uh, is the constraint about what you know what kind of experience they have that, that's it's right the, yeah. it's the user's expectations it's the mode the modality you say so responsiveness, I think, started with, hey, we just need to like get something that goes everywhere. But now it's really turning into a curated experience. Mm. Really, what's the person thinking about and what do they need right now? Mm. And I think that's really where responsive you know, design is going to go in the future, I think. Well, and when I think about the actual syntax in CSS around mm. describing what we commonly call responsive web design, it's looking at the number of pixels I have available to me and deciding how to render. You're talking about a way bigger concept here. Oh, yeah, big time, yeah. big time. <laughs> so, I mean, how do you manifest that? Well, so, you know, there, there's, there's stats that say this. So, like, you know, I, I would say if you want a, a good bet on where responsive will go, it's mm -hmm. that applications are slowly becoming services to people. Meaning right, that, yeah. you know, hey, I'm in a situation, I got to do something, and you don't want to have to go into an app that has 150 features. You want one sure. that is segmented to what you need and you can leave. I, I, yeah. So responsive enables that. Like, all you have to do is, you know, know the environments and the resolution. That's one of the, you know, the parameters or metrics that you can kind of tell for that funnel. Right. But it helps you kind of refine down what the user actually needs to interact with its core. Right. So I think that's the general concept that's uh, emerging in the in the world of design right now. Yeah, it's, it certainly does make sense that if you're just talking about, you know, pixels and, you know, widths of screens and where we put boxes and divs and things like that, you, you can do that all in one page. But when you're talking about different experiences, now we have to maybe break off into different different classes, maybe different objects, maybe different, completely different UIs. So that's an amazing challenge, and that's where the, the real talent comes in. That's what we need innovation, I think, is uh, yeah. the, the old pattern was adaptive. 
meaning that you would just like make a bunch of cuts per persona, sure. new applications for each type of person. But I think like now with really good languages and, and support from all these companies, like they're basically giving us ways to build big applications, but revealing them in different kind of isolated mm -hmm. ways. And it could be a big grand vision. You mm -hmm. could go to an app and see everything and just really experience it. Or it could be sectioned using all of these cool filters yeah. and, and well, portals. You, you hint at this idea with the modalities. It's like, okay, I need many ways to do the same thing. The art isn't only revealing the ones that are relevant at the time. Yeah. So that, that's the hard part is actually saying, okay, I have given all of these choices. What do I show in this context? And making that a cohesive experience. And that's, that's what scares me about sort of having, you know, the, the sort of pick and choose thing where there isn't, there isn't an overarching set of testable, you know, uh, like a, like I look at a class as something that says, okay, for this modality, this is a class or, you know, an ASPX page or a, a, you know, a service or something, whatever you want to call it, but just one unit that is for that particular modality. The thing that scares me about not doing something like that is how, how is it tested? How, how do we find all the permutations of these things that hook up and go together that you're describing like, the, the labors of my life. I yeah, think. it seems like a daunting <laughs> challenge. So uh, I think that what's really cool is that behind the scenes, these are all UX patterns and people's expectations are kind of evolving in this direction. It just calls to action architects. Like we need people that like literally nerd out on the Martin Fowler design patterns because yeah. really this is really about taxonomies and data structures yeah. and really building things that can last long term. Yeah. Now that in, that's in the vision of our technical landscape that we can actually build applications that can be deployed in different environments pretty effectively. And so to avoid the replication like we've always had to deal with, you need to build good apps. I right. mean, it, they need to have good skeletons and they need to perform really well holistically. So mm -hmm. sort of that dynamic composition That's right. is a very central theme and central idea to what you're talking about. So to answer your question about the modalities, um, what we are seeing is a trend of large companies like Netflix or, I mean, even Google. You go search for something and there's a billion results. Well, you get 10 that are important, right? Well, Netflix has a giant catalog, but they only show you like a hundred maybe at any given moment in time. Mm -hmm. So that there's a lot of uh, uh, analysis and like data mining that happens on the back to do that decisioning. So that's another big aspect of responsive design that a lot of people don't see mm. is, is curating that experience Well, you need some way of knowing how to. And that, that's all server side stuff. So it's like, you know, it's nerd land for the, for mm. the developers. Mm. And it all kind of gets swept under the rug because all people see is a really rich experience. Are you, so are you suggesting actually that the app is learning what the person prefers to use and only presenting those elements of the UX that, that, uh, that they preferred so far? That's absolutely right. Wow. Um, so there, there are server side decisioning, you know, components and whatnot that we've had historically. There are now evolving client side decisioning. And then, you know, Netflix is easy because you have long lists and that you can see their design is influenced by the fact that it's really dynamic. Like if you favorite one thing, it changes, you know, magically. Yeah. And so they, they, they had to make some compromises. It doesn't look like a traditional app. They yeah. just have a bunch of long lists, but those lists are really what people are there for. And so they, they responsively focus on what their core persona is. Sure. Yeah. This episode of The Tablet Show is brought to you by Telerik Icinium, which enables you to develop, test, and publish iOS and Android apps from a single code base using only HTML5 and JavaScript. 
And the best part is Icenium lets you do all of this from within Visual Studio, including comprehensive backend as a service in the cloud, integrated support for Kendo UI as well as jQuery mobile, and integrated testing and deployment capabilities. That makes Icenium a robust end-to-end mobile app development platform for .NET developers. Telerik Icenium with its Visual Studio extension is available on a subscription basis and part of the Telerik DevCraft Ultimate Collection. Start a free 30-day trial of Icenium with support at icenium.com slash DNR. That's I-C-E-N-I-U-M dot com slash DNR. And don't forget to thank Telerik for supporting .NET Rocks and the Tablet Show. So this uh, HBO thing was, was, a, was a big deal. What to, where did you go from there? You know, uh, I think like HBO really opened up to a lot of, of media partners. And I mean, I've got, I've had a really rich, you know, uh, career already interacting with lots of cool content and cool companies. Yeah. Um, but you know, Vertigo works with a lot of people and there's a lot of, a lot of active projects. Um, but yeah, we definitely are pretty, pretty focused on TV anywhere, I think. Mm-hmm. This doesn't matter what you're working from, having access to all of that uh, content, any kind of device. That, that's pretty much the design I mean, the, and the desire. Because really the reality is, is that everybody's changing and everybody's evolving in terms of their attention and where their focus is going. Mm-hmm. And, and I, think, I think companies and startups, you know, we hear a lot about the startup story, but big companies also have to monolithically evolve into these design patterns so they, they can kind of stay competitive. Are you involved in the, uh, the streaming of the Olympics and, and all of those uh, aspects of what Vertigo does? So I wasn't, I wasn't directly with that, but I definitely did a lot of work with smooth streaming. Um, mm-hmm. you know, and that, that technology, um, you know, we, we have a lot of people that really just helped a lot with it, kind of right. making sure it's working and doing a lot of use cases. It's another element of responsive design. I mean, the original smooth streaming counted on Silverlight as a client. Mm-hmm. We all know how well that's gone. <laughs> um, but now Netflix is talking about they're doing something equivalent to that in HTML. So there, there are some really cool specs right now. So mm-hmm. Dash is the big front runner. Right. We've got pre-existing HLS, mm-hmm. um, yeah. and that's an Apple spec. And all those are definitely responsive. So they use network heuristics and you know just knowledge and intelligence about how the client is, what they have available for their experience. And they'll literally come up with video that matches whatever situation so that you can have continuity. No skips, no buffering. Yeah, that's yeah. the goal. Yeah. Just always tuning accordingly. And just that's right. The, the appearance is going to shift. I certainly have had that experience watching a YouTube video where it's, it's just sort of vaguely hazy, and then all of a sudden it goes, thud. That's right. Crystal yeah, clear. Right. Well, so there, there, that's a big argument, I think, in the design mm-hmm. world, is should you degrade things? And that's the anti-movement for responsive design. Yeah. Is a website useful at all if I can only have five big buttons right. that I can hit with my phone? Do I still yeah. want to watch that video if it's not anything other than absolutely <laughs> that's right. pristine and, crisp? You know, here's another problem that you can solve, and this is a direct problem, and I see this in YouTube, is that, you know, you, you have a great connection, and then it degrades, right? And then while it's degraded, you're, you're, you're buffering and you're buffering and you're buffering at this low quality. And then the quality goes up and now you've got this huge buffer of crap, right? That you have to wait to get through until you can get your, you know, so do you go back and start replacing that data with high, higher def, uh, higher bitrate data because you can now that your bandwidth has gone up? So like the, the kind of the way they did that is that the, the, the video definitions is just a spec. It's just a way of describing all these. It's like a big matrix of all these are all the things that you can get per segment of the video. Yeah. Really, it's up to, the, up to the player vendors. So like basically YouTube uses a player that they somebody implemented right. to have these advanced algorithms to yeah. monitor heuristics. And, and in some cases, you can recover. Usually, uh, you know, native video players can do that a lot more aggressively because they have right. threading and all that stuff. But I, I'm, I'm using it and I'm trying to figure out what they're doing. They have this auto mode 
you know, that, that auto, uh, supposedly does this. And I can, I can tell, okay, so if it starts in auto motor, if it starts in 480 or whatever it is, and then it goes like this, and I switch it to 1080, and it says, okay, you're at 1080 now. But I still see that it's buffered, and yeah. it's continuing, <laughs> and I'm looking at 480. You know, okay, when is it going to switch? So some, some of the more advanced are yeah. mutually exclusive. There are some really eccentric specs that allow you to actually bring in and, and build on, mm. on the future bit rates. That's neat. It's very rare that anybody can even implement that, though. Yeah, so, yeah. But so the desktop um, browser-based video players, they are kind of strapped for processing power. Sure. So that's one of the big disadvantages is you will stick with a lower bit rate longer because they just can't afford to redo it again, essentially. So wait a minute. So the, the browser on a PC is more strapped for processing power than, say, an iPad is? Well, it's it's all depends on where the work's done, I think, because mm -hmm. then browsers have APIs through HTML5, or depending on what how yeah. they implement it, it could be just a JavaScript and you're sure. doing it in, you know in browser memory. But so even HTML5 is accelerated through the browser implementation, but then mm -hmm. you have to ask who implemented the browser and how close is it to the sure, operating yeah. system. Right. If you do a video tag in IE, it's like, but right. if you do Chrome on Windows, it's not as close to the metal. You're right. right. So there's a, there's a difference. So you know, I I have noticed there's a difference. Yeah. Yeah. There, so there definitely is, is. Amazon Prime, for example, um, skips in Chrome on yeah. Windows, and it does not in IE. And I I completely thought the opposite might be true. That mm. Chrome would have better performance. But that's only because I have so many people around me saying Chrome is awesome and IE sucks. <laughs> The reason why responsive design and this whole HTML5 thing's awesome is because everybody got on board with implementing it. And if you in, if you invest in that, like the responsive design with CSS transformations in Canvas, mm. you really will get the best experience per platform. Mm. But the quite big question is like, how long will it take before we can do stuff like video consistently awesome across the board? Yeah, we just don't know. It just yeah. depends. Yeah, consistency is always the challenging part. And I guess you get back to this. You know, you've talked about these three different pieces of responsive design. And it's one thing to just size for different screens. But then also sizing the stream for the bandwidth. And the other piece is this sizing the UI, the interaction piece, based on available inputs. That's right. There's a there's a huge study right now. I mean, like all these designers are struggling to figure out what do we do with animations, mm -hmm. what do we do with the, all these input patterns, because it's just wildly different mm -hmm. <laughs> user expectations. Sure. Um, and that's where that client side kind of component of it comes from. Um, you know, it used to be just server, and then you would get a different view for each type and now that responsive has really taken off, now the struggle is how can we how can we detect what the user wants on the client based on prior history and all these different things? Do they use gesture a lot? Right. You know, but some people have phones and they don't use gesture as much. You know, right. they, they want to use the keyboards. Yeah, so. They want to use it just just like the Xbox guys. Some want to talk to it, some want to wave at That's it, right. some want to use the controller, some want to use the remote. You need all of those modalities and you've got to make sure they all work. But do you shift between them based on what people are actually using? In the Xbox case, yes. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the Xbox case is one, but they, I think we're going to see more gesture technology show up on more machines. That oh, doesn't yeah. seem to be going away. We all just had a talk with the Connect, the Connect desktop team. That was, right. That's, that's evolving. So. Yeah, and you're involved with that, yeah, too. Yeah, I'm an MVP on the Connect team, so... Uh, That's great. It's great stuff, isn't it? So there's a, definitely a big gap right now mm -hmm. on on the client side of how to get these uh, you know UIs to adapt to people. So mm -hmm. I think there's a lot of room for innovation in that area. Yeah, there sure is. It wasn't the Samsung Four uh, S Four, the latest Samsung phone that had a, a 3D sensor, a non a gesture sensor on it. Like it's not just Connect now. We're going to start seeing these things in more places. Start thinking about a phone app that's responsive to gestures. 
Yeah, there, you know, there's all, I've seen experiments from those phones that mm-hmm. like will literally take people's facial feedback. I mean, just all kinds of these metrics. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the, I, I don't know if it has to go that far because I mean, you're really, you're really going really far to try to do something that's just like, I want to click a button to do something. Right. 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 So I mean, like yeah, the use yeah. cases are kind of rare, but it's still really cool tech and we just don't know it what is. it's going to do. Really. Well, you, you know, if you want to take responsive design to its ultimate manifestation, it's take that technology to be able to read the person whatever sensor that may be, and recognize when they're frustrated That's right. or when they're delighted and respond to that. You can actually do that in the next SDK from, uh, from Connect. Uh, the Connect SDK. The next Connect. It will take the uh, emotional state of your That's of, right. of That's the right. person, you know, to, to a limited degree. I still wrestle with how to express this well. I mean, I, I get the goal. It's just how ugly is the software going to be? So how do you containerize all of those modalities and then surface them in a way that, that keeps it coherent, that's tolerate to change? I think that is the beauty of software. Because like the we, we went through a stage of things getting too complex and too hard to move. For sure. We simplified. Everybody, like when we did the web shift, everybody's like, oh yeah, okay, well I'll deal with just this awful interface mm-hmm. and that's my life now, right? Yeah. Because it's pretty awesome, actually. Yeah, because <laughs> so, yeah, it's portable and there's right. all these advantages. Well, I the think advantage. I think now um, what we're doing is we're, we're training people to build software completely differently. So if you look at the emerging right. cultures of open source and the way people are layering web, web applications right now, it's just not the way it used to be. And I think these are problems that will result in us having four or five tools that we can carry along the way and it'll evolve into having better UX design. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Definitely the separation of services so that I can experiment with other UXs and they're not too expensive to play with. Can you uh, give us some good examples of things that you've seen lately that have really resonated with you? In reference to responsive design? Yeah, in reference to responsive design. Yeah, I, I would say that um, I think the news, the content-driven sites are just doing a great job mm-hmm. right now. You know, like you, you can go to the Smithsonian's website and like they, they really do a great job of presenting, you know, limited content. They scale down mm. descriptions and content, you know, so that you can see it on the, on the fly and stuff like that. Yeah. Um, they're not really doing as much in, in terms of, you know, intelligent rendering. So like, for instance, major sites like Target, they now will show you different products based on your location by default. Nice. Uh. And they also responsibly will start to move, give you different experiences based on where you're, where you're interacting with their content from. Mm-hmm. So I think it's definitely part of the future. And, you know, I think big companies who have been, you know, sending trains out and trucks up, they've been doing this for years. They've been mm-hmm. trying to find ways to predict people and shape things so that it, it makes sense for their environment. I think it's time for the web to evolve into that, and now I think we finally have the tools to do that. And that's kind of what I'm seeing. I thought the, the newsreader that came with Windows 8 was a big step forward in teaching people how to present content in an intelligent way. Just uh, the sort of using space to separate stories and consistent, clear fonts, and uh, you know, not cluttered, just b- little boxes that are all the same size you know what i'm saying uh, i see that sort of taking charge in other websites as well yeah yeah i mean like so i, I know this is kind of funny but like the metro design pattern mm-hmm. is pretty awesome it, it's yeah. pretty awesome the, the live tile that's essentially what people are doing is they're finding ways to take content and like really reduce it and surface the things that are relevant right. so that you can see it at a glance and then have notifications right in the bi space years and years ago we called that dashboarding that's right. Yeah. You know? But it seems like I mean, now it's in the OS. Like everything should have a dashboard. You see Nokia's uh, um, uh, Android phone. Yeah. Yep. Yep. And yeah. It looks a lot like a Windows phone. 
It's like a sort of a metro <laughs> I don't know what happened with the Nokia Android phone. I, yeah. That's an interesting business decision. Isn't it? And like, I don't know how they got the Android community to be okay with that. <laughs> and then the Windows community to be okay with the Android side. So. But it is interesting that it's an Android device that took the best parts of that interface and, you know. Yeah, you're going to want to have to sit a Windows them. phone and an Android phone and an iOS 7 phone side by side. Yeah. You know, okay, where are we going here? Yeah. I mean, the, the, the Metro concept is, I think it's refactory to patterns. I mean, mm -hmm. like, you can, yeah. I think the design is kind of rigid because that's the look and feel, but mm -hmm. it's the same concept. Mm -hmm. you're, you're trying to find a ways to scale down and reveal content to people mm -hmm. based on context, the discoverability yeah. pattern. Right. right. But at the same time, you need, and I think this is, Mark Miller drilled into this pretty heavily when he was mm -hmm. talking about iOS 7, just the consistency of a UI that red is always bad if red is bad at all, yeah. right? And that if we go to the next thing by swiping right, you always do that. It doesn't right. do something Don't else. Don't use it for anything else but that if you're going to use it for that. Mm -hmm. yeah. you, you know, there, I think there's some compelling arguments that brands should define the consistency. Brands as in terms of apps or in terms of the device itself? No, I think I think brands in terms of uh, people who deliver on platforms versus platforms. Okay. And, mm. and so, like, I think there, it just kind of it's hard to tell because I, I do know that there's still a huge, huge number of people that need that consistency of design. Sure. But you know, there's a bunch of people that are emerging, like 30 and below, that are looking for antiquity. Like they they want to be in an environment where it's really curated because there's a suite of apps that makes sense for that type yeah. of design pattern. Mm -hmm. um, and so that's why you'll I think you see like the people are really successful having like eight apps that all are kind of branded the same way yeah but they're in an operating system that they don't play very well with and right mm -hmm. it's kind of going into a wonderland for a little while going to disneyland <laughs> and then coming back i guess wait i think we're <laughs> when we it's been years since we've been in this fragmented of a client world oh yeah we are and we're very much exploring i don't think we've had anyone's made any decisions along one right way have you found and i'm and the ones i'm thinking at I mean, phones are one problem the tablets too i mean have you found compelling tablet apps have you built compelling tablet apps Oh yeah, yeah. Um, you know, I, I have to say, like tablets, video. Like that's right. that's why I just yeah, love that, being that's in the a space huge that I am. Yeah. I mean, so that I mean that the really even if it wasn't in that, that's pretty much what people use tablets a lot for. Mm -hmm. I mean, they're they're not as convenient to do social. They're not quite good to do big heavy lifting. And right. So um, I, I would say that like it, although we are in a really fragmented culture, I think people have already said what they want to use devices for. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't mean that you can't do other things, but they are already dominant in some areas. Sure. Yeah. Yeah, and then, you know, video is clear winner in the tablet form factor. It works awesome. The, and that swipe metaphor has for different ways to find content, but it's a very restricted UI. You don't have the ability to articulate information near as well into a tablet. Well, I mean, that may make sense for those use cases. I mean, right. like, I think that those people, that, that's, I would definitely go back and question, well, you know, what's the core values that you're trying to give to the people? And I think that there's just a bunch of people that came from a, a background where there was a bloat of features, like as many features as possible and you win in right. the market. And not only that, but in the past, people would say, I have task, uh, you know, X, Y, and Z. And they would find things that complement that. Mm -hmm. Oh, the software suite does that. Um, I'll throw it like Quicken or Photoshop. Like, sure. they, oh, they do all these things. Let's big upfront cost and let's do that. Um, I think now people are more about, I want to do X. And they immediately need to go discover new applications that solve that problem. Mm. They need to be able to execute it and leave like immediately. Right. And I, I think that those simplified UIs also, they really complement that. Sure. They're making a culture where someone will install like a hundred apps, you know, in like, you know, a two day period. And yeah, you yeah. only use a given one for a couple of minutes in a given day. That, that's right. And right? a very quick yeah. in, quick out mentality. So I think if that changes, then yeah, you should definitely beef up the UI a little bit to complement more features and, you know, more ecosystem mm -hmm. inside of the actual install. I've always had a sense that the monolithic app, the ERP type apps, these big apps, 
existed that way, not so much that they were complementary, but that an installation was so hard, you'd rather do one install and oh, yeah. do everything than many discrete installs. And that issue's gone. Installations are pretty trivial now. Why wouldn't you decompose every app and do small pieces so you only put on what you need? Yeah, yeah. That, that's, that's a wonderful argument. Yeah. It's, a, it's an interesting part of the equation. It's just the proliferation of organizing on my phone, the fact that I have 100 apps, is a real problem. I wouldn't see it as a problem. So, like, I mean, the developers back a long time ago used to build their own components, and mm -hmm. they could only get on these devices if you were for a company that could help you get on them. We eventually went to software as a service where we started saying, okay, well, instead of me having a cluster of servers, I'm going to rent a little bit for really cheap. And that kept evolving until suddenly there's services everywhere and components. Mm -hmm. As a developer, it made my life, quality of life just shot up. I mean, innovation just went nuts. And sure. I think people are getting into that mode now where instead of you telling them what they're going to do, they're going to get a bunch of tools and they're going to, they're going to kind of build up what their day is now. And there's all these options and, you know, hopefully if we can have good open formats, you can like do something cool over here and then send it to your friend and they can do something. And so I think that's really empowering for people to have that fast churn. Not to mention the community has to compete. It's not just one person who wins all the time. Sure. Todd, I'm going to put you on the spot here. Maybe you can take a minute to think about this, but uh, uh, it's not like, uh, it doesn't sound like it's in your nature to sort of brag about yourself, but try to think of a, a situation where you thought yourself out of, um, or, or out of a, a particularly difficult problem that um, you or your team came up with a brilliant solution that you were really proud of um, recently or in the last couple of years. Well, I mean, I would definitely say that, um, you know, when developing software, software complements people, mm -hmm. their ideas. Like we, we literally are in a medium where you can take ideas and see them live right. on a computer. Like they're, they're, movies can't do this because you can only go so far with graphics and writing can only go so far. So I, I'd say that like day to day, I come across situations where we realize things through source and through code. That's an implementation of an art form. And so I could say, oh, yeah, well, big numbers one day. Or, you know, we built this awesome thing and lots of people, you know, took it in and we were super famous. I mean, I think in reality, it's a passion about software and being able to do that day to day with people that love it. So you have those moments every day is what you're saying. Pretty often. <laughs> it's kind of ridiculous. I mean, just awesome this is kind of a, I hate to say it, but like we're, if you really are into software, which I think a lot of people are, we are artists today. Like yeah. that's, that's it. You yeah. Know, there, there's nowhere else to go from there. I mean, it might be the most evolved art in history. Yeah. I may, I tend to agree. So when you meet people that do, that actually uh, acknowledge that and believe in it, I mean, like it's it just, you're just composing together. That's yeah. it. It's just yeah. awesome all the time. So yeah. Yeah. It's kind of like jazz improvisation. That's right. It's like jazz. Strict rules and freestyle at the same time. But it's very important that people are a part of that. Like, it's not just engineering and math. This is, it's living, and that's why. It's because you're evolving with people, and source evolves with them. The personas are in the code, the code. So yeah. you get to see, realizing that, it's just really exciting. It's fantastic. Todd, thanks very much. No problem. All right, it's been great talking to you. And we'll see you next time on The Tablet Show.